We are in Genesis 10 this morning. I'd like to ask you, invite you to stand with me out of honor for God's word. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. Pray for me as I pronounce all of these names. Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Togarmah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Septeca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kaslahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sunites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zaboim, as far as Lesha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Amodad, Shelef, Azarmaveth, Jerah, Hadram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Ebimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are all the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, please. What a wonderful Christmas text this morning. If you're visiting with us, we make it a custom to just preach from genealogy, so 
Not, not really, but we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we preach expositionally here. We preach book by book, usually, typically, and so we preach chapter by chapter, and this is the chapter, this just so happens to be the chapter that we're on this morning, two weeks before Christmas. Admittedly, the text before us this morning does not seem thrilling. My pronunciations were not perfect. It doesn't engage the senses the way a story like David and Goliath does, or the story of Samson, or other stories. But I'm beginning, I'm, I'm hoping that as we begin to look at the structure, and I'm, hope, I'm hoping that you're beginning to understand that the Bible is amazing. Scripture is amazing. Even a text like this that we read through and you go, really? Like, what's, what's the point of this? You're going to see that this passage, and I hope you're beginning to see that passages like this hold much significance. Hopefully you're realizing that. This passage, our passage this morning, is no different. But in order to see the glory of this passage, and there is glory there, I know you're all like, where's that going to come from? In order to see the glory of the passage, we must begin by looking and observing its structure. Every passage of Scripture has a structure. You've got to see the structure of it if you're going to see what the point of it is. So I'd like to give you several structural points, several structural observations here of this passage. Please follow along with me as I talk through this first part. First, we see that this genealogy is structured differently. It's unique in its structure from other genealogies that we've interacted with to this point. Other genealogies tend to be linear. So-and-so fathered so-and-so, and then they lived so many years and died, and that guy then fathered somebody else, and then he died, and then that guy fathered. So it's linear from father to son. This genealogy, though, is what's called a segmented genealogy. So you'll have a descendant, and then all of their descendants given before moving on. These segments surround three men, three sons of Noah. As we were walking through, maybe you noticed there are some individual names given, of course, it's a genealogy, but also maybe you noticed that there were peoples given, not just individual names, but whole peoples or people groups identified. These are those ending in em, in English, the I-M, Em or Ites, the Girgashites and the Havilites and all those, okay? Those are people groups. And so this genealogy contains not just individuals, but people groups. You also notice that sometimes you're given the names of the places. The places are the geographical locations and areas, regions where they settle. So not only does this genealogy identify people, but it identifies people groups and their geography. Next, I'd like you to notice that this genealogy is structured around three sections. You saw it, right? One for Japheth. The one for Japheth is very short, which is important. The one for Ham, which is much longer. And then the one for Shem, which is also long. Notice at the end of each section, I want you to look at it, verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31. Look at it, verse 5, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, 
each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Verse 20, you have the same four terms. Clans, languages, lands, and nations. Again, verse 31, you have the same four terms. Their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These four terms mean to signify a comprehensive explanation. All the people groups that came from Japheth, Ham, and Shem are represented here. And since these are the only three sons of the last man standing after the flood, Noah, since these come from the only three sons that Noah has, there is a sense of totality to this list, a a list of global significance. Now, Now you know, you noticed, not every single person, not every single people group is mentioned in this list. That's on purpose. But in the way that these are listed, it's meant to signify that all of the nations or all the people groups of the world are represented here by these four terms, clans, languages, lands, and nations. Kind of like the four directions of the compass, four directions of the wind, north, south, east, and west. That's the significance there of those four terms. So there's a comprehensive explanation here by these four terms. All the people groups come from Japheth, Ham, and Shem. So what's being described here, and I've used that term a couple times already, what's being described here in this genealogy is best best given the description of people groups. Some of these people groups grew to be quite significant in size and influence. You notice that as you were walking through. Each would have been comprised of families and clans that would have had their own leadership within them. There would have been a recognized leader or chief, even king of the different people groups. They would have had the same language. They would have settled in the same geographic region. And these commonalities would have created a shared culture or tradition. They would have eaten the same types of food and so on. So you could, and it's not perfect, it's not a perfect term, but you could use the term ethnicities in connection to what we have described here in Genesis 10. We have a comprehensive list of the different ethnic groups. Now this is important. The term for ethnicities or ethnic groups is the term, the Greek term used in Matthew 28. You know what Matthew 28 is? The Great Commission. Go you therefore to all nations. In the Greek, that's pantata ethne, ethne being ethnic groups. Go to all the people groups. So it's not just simply go to all the nations, go to all the people groups with the gospel. So what is not being referred to, and this is important, I'm going to give you two things that's not being referred to in this list very quickly. What's not being referred to here, and I've got to say this because people tend to read their own notions of things into the Bible. Have you, ever, have you recognized that? People like to read their own ideas into the Bible. What's not being referred to here is our understanding of the modern nation state. The modern nation state is not what's being described here. These are not different nation states as we understand them today. Uh, and, And whether you realize this or not, our present understanding of nation state is very recent in human history. 
That's why most of us have difficulty reading and understanding history that goes farther back than a few hundred years. You get really confused by all the different kings and regions and all the different things because our, our modern understanding of nation states is very recent. What's also, the Bible wouldn't have been understanding it that way. What's also important to note here is what's, what's not being represented is the different races of the earth. Okay, so it's not, it's not telling us about different nation states. It's also not giving us different races of people. Just like our modern notion of nation state, our modern notion of race is also very recent. Okay, this is not something the Bible talks about. The Bible does not understand the world in races. Very important doesn't identify people by their races if we've, as we've come to understand race. Now, why do I think that's important to say? I think that's important to say because for some of us, as we grew up, and this is literally what I was taught in the churches I grew up in, I was taught that Ham was black and that Canaan, his son, was black and that the curse that happened in Genesis 9, remember, Ham goes in and discovers the nakedness of his father and doesn't cover him up. I was taught in the 80s and 90s, not that long ago. For some of you, are like, that was before I was born. No, that wasn't that long ago, okay? Not that long ago, I was taught, and people in the churches I was we were taught that Genesis 9 and 10 actually is the justification for American slavery, You want to know how the South justified it? They went to Genesis 9 and 10. It's perverted. It's abhorrent. What we are finding here in Genesis 10 is not about races. Okay? In fact, they were all the same color. They were all from the same family. Okay? So they would have looked like each other. I'm going to move on from that before I get wound up. The brothers, very simply, the brothers, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, were not different colors. They were all the same color. They were from the same family. So this genealogy means to represent the division of all the people groups who originally inhabited the globe in the ancient world after the flood. They are not different nation states or different races of people. Now, some of you may be asking, because you're very, you're very smart, well, how can we have different languages and the divisions of the lands and the people groups before the Tower of Babel? That happens in chapter 12 or chapter 11. How can we have that here? Well, this is another structural note. Chapter 10 is given to us out of chronological order. The writers of Scripture often do this to emphasize something. The writer wants to draw our attention to the result of chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, before giving us that account. He's emphasizing it by doing that. It is the what before the why. So chapter 11, next week, will give us the theological reasons behind what we find in chapter 10. By fronting this genealogy, the author is giving an emphasis here not paralleled in ancient literature. So as we've been walking through Genesis, we've talked a lot about the fact that there are many pagan origin stories that parallel what we find in the book of Genesis. Every, every different people group has their creation story, they have a flood story, and they even have a tower story. 
why, why do all these people groups have their different stories, their different creation stories and flood stories and tower stories? I said it last week, I'll say it again. Because they actually happened. Why do you think they all have them? Because they're real historical events. Very, 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 very strong argument for the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. But what none of those accounts have, what none of those accounts have is a Genesis chapter 10. None of them have a genealogy like this one. Why is that? Well, because if you're telling the story of all these different events, you're going to tell this story from the perspective of your people. Your God and your people and your land, you're going to be the center of the story. Did you know that's, that's a tendency that people have? As they tell history, they tend to tell it from their perspective. Their clan, their family, their nations, you know, their, their, their people, these are the stars of the story. So, your God or gods are going to be the... Uh, creators. Your people's hero is going to be the one who stars in the great flood story. Your people's interaction is going to be what you're concerned with when you tell the story of the tower. And it's your people's genealogy that you focus on. Why here then do we have not a focus on a single people group, but a a focus on all the global reality, the global story Did you notice what we don't have here in Genesis chapter 10? Do you notice what people group is not mentioned? Israel's not mentioned. Israel is not drawn attention to here in this story. We don't see Israel. Here, the nations are emphasized and not Israel. We'll return to that thought briefly, so stick a pin in that. We'll return to that just in a minute. The last structural feature I want to bring your attention to, the last piece of structure in order of this genealogy concerns the numbers of descendants. We see that the genealogy begins with Japheth, and I told you it was very short, it's very brief. Seven of his sons are given, then seven grandsons or peoples that came from him, totaling how many? Fourteen. Well, why him first? Why is Japheth first? Well, because he, he is the ancestor of the people settle, that settle in the coastlands, the islands, the places bordering seas north and farthest from Israel and the promised land. Then we have Ham. Ham and his descendants, peoples that come from him. This list is longer, as I said, and is filled with some familiar names. Did you notice the names underneath Ham? These peoples are the ones that will settle in closer proximity to the land of Israel, the people of God. In fact, the Canaanites, the Canaanites who were the focus of Genesis chapter 9 there at the end, the Canaanites, did you see the list of people that come from them? Right? This is why that story in Genesis chapter 9 is so significant as As Noah tells Shem that Canaan will be his servant. This is very important because we see that Canaan has been delivered already. God has promised it. Canaan has been delivered over already to Israel. They do not need to be afraid of these that inhabit that land. God is going to give them that land and these people will be their servants. Now, 
One of our teens, the other night, we have youth night on Wednesday nights, one of our teens asked a very insightful question, and maybe you've been asked the same question. How can God endorse or order the killing of the people of Canaan? How can Israel be told by God to go into the land of Canaan and destroy all of these peoples? Well, in order to answer that question, you need to understand the biblical storyline. You need to understand who the people of Canaan were. Get it, okay? Get it, because we just went through it in the flood. These peoples were filling the land with violence. Canaan, the Canaanites, were filling the land of Canaan with violence. They were like Cain. So the the justification for cleansing the land of Canaan from the Canaanites is the same justification that God had for sending the worldwide flood. And if you don't, so if you don't get the justification for the flood, you're not going to get the justification for the cleansing of the land of Canaan either. We have with Canaan what we have with the story of the flood. Remember what I said then. This is an example of salvation through judgment. God brings about salvation through judgment. And we do have examples, remember, of the Canaanites who come to God and believe and trust in Yahweh. You remember Rahab. So there was an opportunity for the Canaanites to flee to God and trust in him. Again, those who flee to God, those who go to God and trust in God will live. You saw that very clearly laid out. Those who flee to God will live. Those who shake their fist in his face will be judged. Now somebody will say, well, how about all those innocent people? All those innocent people. What does that betray when we say something like that? That betrays that we do not understand the nature of sin. Again, I call your attention back to Genesis chapter 6. Every thought of the intention of their hearts was only evil continually. Filling the earth with violence. Killing What God does is just and fitting. There are no innocent people. Not in the world before the flood were there any innocent people. Not in the land of Canaan were there any innocent people. Not in the land of Israel we will soon discover. There are no innocent people in the land of Israel. Israel will come to be very proud of their salvation and they will forget that they do not deserve to be saved. In fact, they, be, they deserve to be judged like everyone else. There are no innocent people in the land of Israel. And there are no innocent people in the land of America. We know that, right? But how about this? There are no innocent people in this room. None of us are innocent. None of us are good people. That's always, it's always amazing to me when I tell somebody that, that you're not a good person. That stuns them. It stuns me sometimes when I'm confronted with my sin. I need to remember that I am not innocent. I am not a good person. We all deserve judgment. No one deserves salvation. But, and here's what we see over and over again, God is a saving God. 
God continuously, continually saves people that do not deserve his salvation. Do you think you deserve God's salvation today? You know how you can tell if you're starting to fall into this idea that you deserve salvation? Here's a really easy way to tell. You're very judgmental. You like to point out the sins of others. You like to call out the wickedness and the evil of other people. That's how you know you're starting to forget that you do not deserve salvation. God is saving people who do not deserve it. Now, the peoples that come from the other sons of Ham are many of the ones that will be the neighbors of Israel and cause no end to problems for Israel for the rest of the story, right? You saw that as you went through, right? Egypt, did you see Egypt's name there? Egypt, the Philistines, some people debate whether these are the same Philistines or not, but there's somebody along the line who edited it and put them in, right? The Philistines come from Canaan. The Sidonians, the Sidonians are the ones, the nation that Jezebel comes from. That's Jezebel's homeland. And there's one particular place that the genealogy slows down and gives a description about somebody. His name is Nimrod. Did you see that there? Up in verse number eight, Cush fathered Nimrod. Notice the description of Nimrod. He was a mighty man and a mighty hunter. His name means we shall rebel. Nimrod is a rebel. And we also find in the text that he's a builder of a kingdom. Nimrod builds kingdoms. His kingdom revolves around mighty cities. He's a city builder, a builder of cities. And you see that his kingdom will then give the building blocks for what will become Babylon and Assyria. Do you think that's significant? Babylon and Assyria will be those two kingdoms that will take Israel away into captivity. Nimrod is like Cain too. He builds cities for his own kingdom, for his own namesake. And we will see that next week in the story of the Tower of Babel, the fruit of this heart disposition. Altogether, Japheth had 14. Ham and his descendants total... 30. Can you do math? 14 plus 30 equals 44. The last then given is Shem and his descendants and peoples. Shem is where we get the term Semites. You've heard a lot about anti-Semitism today. Semites, that comes from the word Shem. Altogether with the descendants of Shem or the Semites, you have 26 descendants or peoples. There is a note there about Eber. You saw that right away. Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder brother of Japheth. So you have here a a focus on Eber. He will be the father of Peleg. We also have a note next to his name. Remember, we always want to look for the notes and the genealogies. A note next to Peleg's name that says, in his day, the earth was divided. His name means to be divided or to divide. In his days when the Tower of Babel took place. So it's not about a geological division. It's about the Tower of Babel event. So then we'll see in Genesis chapter 11, this line focused on again. And it'll narrow down on these names again. But the focus here, the focus here in Genesis 10 is upon the nations. 
And that brings me back to the numbers, okay? So you had 14 descendants of Japheth, you had 30 descendants of Ham, and you have 26 descendants of Shem. What does that total? Everybody's, I can, the, the smoke is coming out of people's ears right now. Everybody's like, oh, I don't know. That brings the total to 70. 70. Now, seven, 70, 7 times 10, emphasizes the completeness of the list. This list is meant to signify the totality of the peoples, the totality of the nations, the people groups, the whole world with all its people groups. And 70 is an important number. This is not numerology, by the way, okay? We don't go down that road. But 70, we already, we already see, is an important number. It signifies completeness. Later, Israel, the nation of Israel, will be represented, very important, will be represented by 70 elders. They represent the whole of Israel. I'm going to give you two cross-references here that are really important for understanding Genesis 10. The first one is in Deuteronomy 32. Just listen. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, in a passage we call the Song of Moses, we are given a really important connection for this number 70, or this number of nations. Listen, Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Some translations have the sons of God, but it's referring to the sons of Israel. So listen to it again. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. It's talking about Genesis 10. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. Now, what is he referring to there? How many went down into Egypt? Do you remember the story in Genesis? How many sons of Abram, how many sons of Israel went down into Egypt? Seventy. Seventy were the ones, the descendants that actually went down into Egypt. So, Scripturally, it seems, this is, really, this is really powerful if you get it. Scripturally, it seems that the totality of nations, the people groups, is represented in Israel. This is heading us to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 10, 11, and 12. What we will see, what we'll come to see, is that not only will Israel become instrumental in bringing the blessing of God to all the nations, but, in fact, the blessing that Israel is given pictures the blessing that God desires to bring to the entire world. All of the nations. Here's what I'm saying, and listen... If you want to get your earwax out of your ears and listen, this is important, okay? The Bible has never been solely about Israel. Israel is not the point of the Bible. It has always been a story of God's glory covering the globe and his blessing going to the ends of the earth. Israel represents the nations. And what God is going to do through them is going to bring blessing to the nations, but what he does with them shows the whole world who he is. It shows us what God is going to do for all people groups. 
That's one cross-reference. Let me give you another cross-reference. During Jesus' ministry, we have a very interesting occurrence that takes place in chapter 10 of Luke. In the book of Luke, we see Jesus send out two groups of disciples. The first group is the 12. 12 disciples, which represent, and this is, in the, this is a, a point in the book of Luke, the 12 disciples represent the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. These are, this is signifying that God is giving new leadership to his people in the 12 disciples who will become apostles. But in chapter 10 of Luke, Jesus sends out another group of disciples, and this time the number of the disciples that he sends out is 72, actually. In the ESV, this is where translations comes in. If you go to Luke chapter 10 and look at it, 72 in the ESV, but you look at the note down at the bottom of the page, and it says some manuscripts have 70. In fact, if you look at the manuscript evidence, it's evenly divided between 72 and 70. And here's the significance of that. Why the difference? Well, it has to do with our passage in Genesis 10. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been the translation that, that Jesus and the disciples were using, the Greek translation that was written in the 3rd century BC, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament actually has 72 peoples listed here in Genesis 10. It adds a a couple names in the Greek translation. And they number it a little bit differently. But it has 72. The Hebrew Bible, the Masoretic text, has 70. And I think it should be 70 there in Genesis 10. But here's the significance for us. The original readers of Luke chapter 10 realized that what's being referenced by sending out these disciples is Genesis 10. And the totality. So depending on whether they're using the Greek translation or the Hebrew translation, they're going to change the number of the disciples that Jesus sends out. Either 72 or 70. So the the original readers of Luke 10 saw a direct connection between Jesus' commission and the full number of the people groups of the globe. So, not only does Luke Acts give us a new leadership for God's people... It shows us that the mission, the mission of Luke, the mission of Jesus in Luke and Acts is a mission for the gospel to all the nations, to the entirety of the people groups. So what we actually have here in Genesis 10, get it, Israel's role was for the sake of the nations. And so now is the church's role for the sake of the nations. God's goal is not merely about one people group over another. His goal is global doxology. His goal is global glory. He wants to fill the earth with his name. He wants to fill the earth with his glory. How? By filling the earth with his reconciled image bearers. What we have here in Genesis 10 then... I hope you're saying this. I hope you're following following the point. What we have in Genesis 10 is actually one of the greatest missionary texts in the entire Old Testament. We see that God, his plan of salvation isn't about Israel. His plan of salvation is about the nations. The church, we have been commissioned 
to go to the nations, to go to the people groups of the earth. I want us today to stop thinking so small about our lives and our mission. I want us to, to see and to get, a, to get a glimpse of what God plans for the earth, the people groups. I'm going to give you three truths that come out of Genesis 10 for us today. Three truths. Truth number one. Humanity is one. Humanity is one. We are all from the same ancestor. Humans of every nation and tongue and tribe, we are all from the same family tree. Your family tree and my family tree, we follow it back far enough, all of them are going to converge and meet at Noah. All of us. You know what this means? We have no essential differences. We are at our essence and in our being, we are the same. This is where the modern and false and perverted notion of differing races comes from. There is this belief that people of different colors actually have different essence or we are essentially different. Even biologically different, you'll hear people say. Almost like we're different species. But we are not. We are the same. We all share the same essence and being. We are made of the same stuff. No matter the nation, language, tribe, or geographical location we're from, we have more in common with each other than we do in difference. This also means that we're all of the same worth and value. We talked about this when we talked about the image of God more in depth. We're all on the same level. See, see, mankind is really good at trying to make levels between people, depending on race or depending on socioeconomic status or depending on where you're from or on and on and on and on. That's all a bunch of baloney. We're all on the same level. We're all the same in worth and value. Everyone's life has the same value because we're all made as God's image. So to dehumanize others or to objectify other humans is perverse and ungodly. This should be driven out of our midst. Partiality should never exist in the people of God. This this is why Paul is so careful to tell us that it doesn't matter how much money you make, you're on the same level. You're not more important than other people. Why? Because what is our tendency? Our tendency is when we're impressed with somebody to give them the best seats, to listen more carefully to what they say. But the average guy or the kind of the guy that's not very impressive, we don't care much about what he says. He doesn't have much to offer us. Again, this should be driven out of our midst, this partiality. It also means this, this reality that we are one it also means that we're bound to one another. Well, practically speaking, that means, you know, I'm obligated to the people near me first. I, I can't take care of the people across the globe as well as I can to the people who are right around me. We are still connected to everyone. We are called to love our neighbor as ourself. I'm in a real sense connected and obligated to every other member of mankind. 
I cannot act like the rest of the world doesn't exist. I have a connection to every person in the world. And that is why we should mourn the loss of life no matter who it is. That is why we should grieve at all suffering. And that is why we should not want any person to experience the judgment of God. When you pass by people, is your first response to judge them? To mock them? To think little of them? Or is your heart broken over their condition and desire to see them saved? We should not want anyone to perish. This, in fact, God on his part says this, right? He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Humanity is one. Truth number two, the world, though, is divided. The world is divided. While every member of mankind is from the same family, while every member of mankind should have a mutual love for one another, while every member of mankind should, uh, to put it this way, have each other's back, while every member of mankind is from the same family, there is great division in the world. We see that here in Genesis 10, right? Man's sinfulness has led to hatred, to killing, to violence, to division. Man is not at peace. They're at war. Isn't that what's represented here in the list of nations? We could follow the history of each one of these people groups, and that's what we'll see. These peoples will will kill, they'll destroy, they'll dominate one another. God's gracious parameters he gives in Genesis 9, the Noahic covenant. Remember the law he gives about taking others' lives? That will hold people and restrain them. But evil will still fill the world. That's how evil man is. The world will be filled with peoples who hate and kill. And isn't this what we continue to see? Isn't this what we continue to have bombard our senses as we look at the news? In those brief moments where we see peoples living at peace with one another, see, the the world would have us believe that that's the norm. We're all good. We can live at peace with one another. No, I'm sorry. That's never been the case and never will be the case. Not, Not in and of ourselves. When we do see brief moments where you see people living at peace with one another, why? How? It's because they emphasize their commonalities instead of their differences. They unify, unite around some common cause, some common situation. But that peace never lasts long. Why? Because every thought and intention of our heart is only evil continually. Recently, I've been reading a book called The Wager. Has anybody else seen that? It's about a British man of war that is shipwrecked off the coastline of Patagonia. If you know anything about Patagonia, it's a desolate place, uninhabitable by, by people. And they're shipwrecked there. This is uh, the middle of the 1700s. They're shipwrecked there off of the coastline of Patagonia. And they have to go to a deserted island. These men, these British naval officers and seamen who were bound together by a common purpose, that is, tracking down the Spanish fleet. They were bound together and unified, and then once, once that's gone, they go to the shore, and you would not believe the atrocities that they work against one another. 
these men who were united on a ship now are not united and kill one another, dominate one another, even eat one another. Why? Because this is who we are. James 4 tells us that. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is true of every people group that has ever existed in the world for all of history. We should be surprised by peace, not by conflict. Conflict should not surprise us. I'm always amazed. I'm always puzzled when people come to me when they have interrelational tensions. They come to me and are embarrassed to tell me that they're not getting along with other people. I mean, seriously, in my mind, I go, well, what did you expect? Well, we're not getting along. Yeah, join the club. No, we, 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 we think we're unique, right? Somehow, We've got it in our minds that everyone else in the world gets along, but there must be something really wrong with me because we can't get along with other people. There must be something seriously wrong with my family, something seriously wrong with my marriage, something seriously wrong with my small group, or whatever context you want to take it to. Something uniquely wrong with us that other people don't struggle with. No, we're all the same. We're all the same. Again, we should not be surprised by conflict or division. We should be surprised by peace. We're all the same in our worth and value, but we're also all the same in our sin. We're all the same. No one is any different. None of us is unique. And none of us, this is so important, none of us knows how to live peacefully with one another. None of us actually knows how to do that. Not naturally, This is what we see in our families. Our family, our family unit is a microcosm of what's going on in the world. And yet we all want peace, don't we? We all want to live at peace with our families. We all want to live at peace with our small group. We all want to live at peace with those we work with. We all want the world to be at peace. I was driving around with my kids yesterday. We were doing some Christmas shopping. However you feel about Christmas is not important right now, but we were doing some Christmas shopping and we were listening to sappy, horrible, sentimental Christmas music. I just got to tell you people, I'm over it. I'm, I am over it. I cannot do one more. Oh, that was like our one. So we're sitting there listening. We're sitting there listening to this Christmas music and this, this song comes on. This is on a Christian radio station, quote unquote, Christian radio station. And they should be promoting wholesome music, right? Is what you're thinking. There was a song that came on that was literally a prayer to Santa Claus. The song was a prayer to Santa Claus. Santa, give me this grown-up wish list. And you know what was top of the wish list? Peace on earth. Bring peace to the earth. Well, that's a good desire, isn't it? We all have that desire. We want peace. We want the world to be at peace. But there is no hope for peace apart from God's work. And that's point number three I want to give you for us today. The humanity is one. Humanity is one. 
However, mankind is divided. We see this in our own lives and we see this all around us. But truth number three, and this is what we get from Genesis 10 and its connections. All peoples, all people groups will will be joined together, unified together in the worship of God through Christ. You want peace? You want unity? There's only one place to find it. That's in the worship of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord, God, Yahweh, is not merely the God of Israel. That's what we see in Genesis 10. He's not merely the God of Israel. He is the God who created all things, both heaven and earth and all that lives therein. It's all His. Every people group is His. Every nation, every kingdom belongs to Him. And all of us, all the inhabitants of the earth should worship Him as God. But the people of the earth did not worship Him as God. And in this, and in this, we too are united Our rejection of him is not unique. I'll have people tell me all the time, well, I'm an atheist. And I say, well, that's pretty normal. I mean, that's pretty normal. That's the norm. That's not offensive to me. Sometimes people tell me that because they're wanting to offend me or they're wanting to like kind of put up a strong front. Well, I'm an atheist. I'm like, well, that makes you like everybody else. (laughs) I don't, that's not unique. What's unique What's unique, what we should be surprised by, is somebody actually worshiping God through Christ. That's unique. And yet we see that this is what God is doing. He's bringing people to worship him through his son, Jesus Christ. While we are all the same in our sin, while we are all the same in the judgment we deserve, while we are all the same... In these ways, we are also the same in that he offers salvation to all of us without partiality. The offer of salvation is the same to every people group. The plan of salvation is the same for every culture, every nation, every people, every language. There's only one way of salvation for all peoples, no matter who they are or where they're from. We read it earlier, Acts 17. Let me read it very quickly, Acts 17. Paul tells them at the Areopagus there. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation. Do you hear that? He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's fixed a day where he'll judge all the world. 
by one man, by Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance of this by raising that man from the dead. That news is for all the nations. This great missionary text, Genesis 10, is about going to all the nations and languages from all over the globe and bringing them to worship their God. He brings his blessing for the nations through Israel and he commissions the church to take that message to all the nations. And, and, and get this, it seems that in the eternal state, it seems that in the eternal state, all of those nations and tongues and languages, they remain distinct. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes people think that in heaven we're going to have one language. Oh no. No, we're going to have languages and peoples and people groups. We're going to have that same distinction, that diversity right? Listen to Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So all these distinctions remain. All tribes, all peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These distinctions of people groups are not done away with, but are brought to oneness, to perfect harmony. There will be perfect unity with all that diversity. And what will be the one thing that brings us to that perfect unity? The worship of the glorious God around his son, Jesus Christ. Some people think that mere unity in diversity is the goal that the point is just to be diverse. Listen, we got, a lot of, we got a lot of different diversity going on here, even at this small of a church, right? A lot of diversity. But unity and diversity isn't the goal. Hell will be just as diverse as heaven. No, it's not just diversity. It is, it is the point of that unity and diversity. The worship of of the glorious God around the throne of his son, Jesus. That's what unifies us. So I want to ask you, why are you divided? What's your reason? What's your justification for your division from one another even? And what is your reason? What is your justification for no witness to the nations. I'm afraid that the answer to both of those questions has to do with what I'm going to term small-mindedness. A small-mindedness. A tunnel vision. We get smaller and smaller in our minds and in our worlds. Our focus gets smaller and smaller our lives just focus on our, our tribe, our clan, our family, our things. That's all we care about. We get smaller and smaller in our minds. Continue to emphasize our separation from this group or that group. What's the remedy then? Our remedy for sm- such small-mindedness is to open our eyes and to see God's plan 
God's plan is big. God's plan isn't for one denomination over another. God's plan isn't for one people group over another. God's plan is to bring all peoples and all nations and all tribes and all languages to bring people from every corner of the earth to his throne to worship him in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's his vision for the world. And it should be our vision for the world. If you are here this morning, your life is consumed with yourself. You've not repented of your sin and turned from your sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Can I, can I offer you the same offer of salvation? Salvation is for you today even. Jesus has died for your sin. He has suffered in your place for your sin. He has risen from the dead and he has conquered sin and death for you in your place. All you must do is come to him in faith and trust. As we've already looked at, run to him. Seek refuge in him and you will live. Continue to shake your fist in his face and you will experience a just and fitting judgment. Be saved today. doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, where you're from. Nationality, color, any of all the above, come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for Genesis 10. Thank you for what it means. Thank you for its significance. I pray that you would give us all a big view of your word and a big view of your plan for salvation for all peoples. I pray that you would infect us with this enlarged view of the world and of our lives and of what you're doing and accomplishing, that even in our small area and even our small place, it seems so insignificant. No, Lord, you have made it significant by connecting it to your grand vision for the world. I pray that you would help us see that and embrace that. Keep us from narrow, small-mindedness that stifles our joy and causes division, stifles our witness. We pray all of this for your sake and your name. Amen.